0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We
1: choose the one on the good That's one small step for man, one giant
2: leap.
3: To episode number two hundred and four of Talking Space. My name is Gene McCulka, your host, and I'd like to welcome on board our usual list of suspects. Uh, good evening, Sawyer Rosenstein. How are you doing today? I'm doing very great. How are you, Gene McCulka? Pretty darn good, there, Sawyer. Mark Ratterman, how are you doing there, my friend? Hi, Gene. Uh, it's kind of different having you there in the captain's chair.
2: I had a wise, wise guy joke for Sawyer, but I guess I'll hold it for another show. <laughs>
3: oh, thank <laughs> you, Mark. <laughs> Gina Hurley, good evening. How you doing there?
1: Great, Gene. How are you doing?
3: Pretty darn good. Thank you very much. And we have two guests with us today. Uh, Jeff and Becca Setzer from Astronomy Out and About, on, which runs on Astronomy FM at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesdays. Good evening to you both.
0: Hi, Gene. Hi, guys.
3: Good evening. Uh, I thought it would be kind of neat, uh, since you folks were kind enough to uh, to have us on your show just this past Tuesday, to go ahead and reciprocate and uh, have you on ours and uh, talk about your show and maybe go ahead and sit in on uh, a little bit on what uh, what we do. First off, tell me a little bit about Astronomy FM and your show, Astronomy on, on, Out and About.
0: Well, Astronomy FM is um, is uh, essentially a an internet radio station. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And uh, what they do is we have original programming uh, every uh, evening, uh, typically is when we have it. And then we repeat that programming um, at different times throughout the next day because we have a global listening audience. And Astronomy Out and About is our particular show that we do, as you mentioned, uh, Tuesday evenings at 9 um, Eastern Standard Time. And we do those um, for the last, what, seven weeks, I think. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the focus of, the, of our show is amateur astronomy and education and public outreach. So, showing people the stars with telescopes and that kind of thing. So, uh, how did the show come about?
3: What did uh, what did you folks, did you just uh, go ahead and, and talk to the folks over at Astronomy FM and say, hey, we got a show idea, or you know, how did it go ahead and evolve?
4: Well, what happened is I actually heard about Astronomy FM on Twitter. Um, I wa uh, we are friends with a woman named Marlene who also lives in Wisconsin, who happens to be one of the people that helps out a lot with Astronomy FM. She's one of the volunteers over there, and she, you know, would put this on Twitter. And finally, I was like, okay, I'm sick of seeing this. I'm going to check it out. So. I got over on the Astronomy FM website and started listening to the radio and talking in the chat room and looking at the forums, and I got hooked. And then, you know, I played out loud, so Jeff would hear it, and he wanted to know what it was, so he joined in. And then, after a while, just talking in the chat room and everything, they said to us, Hey, why don't you guys come and just fill in for this one show, and, you know, it's just going to be this one time, and just, you know, just check it out and see if you like it, see if it's any fun. So, we did... And we're still here, so I guess the rest is history.
0: <laughs> like so many volunteer efforts, it was sort of, hey, why don't you try it once? And then immediately after our, our show, they started talking about having it as a regular feature. And I know I would, when I was talking with Becca, we thought, well, maybe they'll have it mo- maybe monthly or something like that. And then they turn around and say, no, we'd like you to do it weekly. And since we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, we said, okay. <laughs> and I guess Well, it's still working so far. <laughs>
5: If I'm correct, your show is live, so what are some of the difficulties or the challenges that you've experienced from doing a live show? Because on a podcast like this, it's recorded, and if we don't like something, we could say, scratch that, delete it, and the people out there listening have no idea that there was even a mistake. So what are some of the difficulties that you've experienced doing a live show?
0: Well, there are a few things that make things a little interesting with a live show. One of them is, as you mentioned, if someone makes a mistake, you can just kind of back up and, and edit that out. We can't do that, so you know you have to kind of uh, you know watch you know a little bit sometimes. what just say <laughs> kind of one thing. Uh, another thing is um, the technology can sometimes get in the way. So I mean, when you guys were on Gene and, and sorry, you guys were on this last week on our show, and we end we ended up having some problems because the. Uh, you know the, the technology that we use uh, includes Skype, and it also includes uh, streaming server technology. And the uh, streaming server that we were that we ran time on actually decided to start doing a uh, operating system, a Windows operating system update, right in the middle of our of our broadcast. So it went, it rebooted itself, it went down. So well, we just had to basically sort of, you know, uh, you know, work in, work work in the chat room a little bit, which we'll talk about. Um, at least people knew that we were still around, and then also just sort of work the problem on the back end and, and get back online and, and start uh, where we left off.
5: Not like we ever experienced technical difficulties here on a recorded show either.
3: No, <laughs> no we never, never experienced any of them here. Of course not. <laughs> uh, what, what would you, um, how would you characterize the audience for Astronomy FM? Is it geared for beginners? Is it geared for? Um, you know, the astronomer here in the U.S., is it geared for, uh, you know, an international audience? Um, you know, tell us a little bit about that.
4: Well, I think it's actually, it's geared for pretty much everyone. Every amateur, I I don't know that we really, for astronomy out and about, I don't know that we have anybody, we really have any programs that would be geared towards professional astronomers at this point. But I believe that in the future of Astronomy FM, that will probably happen it we'll have shows where at least we feature professional astronomers. In fact, it probably has happened. Like Jeff said, we really actually haven't been around that long, so I don't know. But as far as I show, I think it's more towards amateur astronomers and beginner, beginner astronomers. So people who are learning about the night sky now and people who are already part of a local club or maybe do outreach on their own or just have a general int- interest in all things astronomy-related.
3: And is it geared, again, is it geared toward, you know, here in, in the U.S. only, or is it, oh. is, is it an international flavor, or, or, or how, would you, uh, how would you characterize that?
4: Well, I think we try to gear it towards everyone. However, I mean, the show is in English, so it's obviously geared towards English speech speakers at this point. But we try to include things that apply worldwide that aren't specifically, you know, United States outreach issues.
0: Right, and the things that we'll talk about um, do uh, have a universal appeal. If you're an amateur astronomer, especially um, anybody who has a telescope, generally speaking, if they set it up somebody somewhere where other people can see that set up, they'll ask questions about it, and uh, that is that is true uh, no matter no matter where you live. So, by definition, then um, you're doing astronomy outreach, and, and the idea of uh, you know discussing what objects are good to show people and things like that have a universal appeal and of course also if uh you're talking about you know saturn being well placed for viewing at a certain uh time of night is that's your local night time but generally speaking uh many of the things we talk about as far as targets uh, for telescopes are available around the world
5: now you guys interact with your audience through a chat room what has that really added to your show well the chat room it adds a whole other
4: dimension you know a lot of times when you're on the radio, I think, actually having never been on the radio before, this is just a guess on my part, but it's, it's so one-sided. You know, I know what Jeff is talking about, and Jeff knows what I'm talking about, and we know what the other one's thinking because we're right here in front of each other, but we really don't know what's going on with our audience when they're listening in. And the chat room has really given us a great way to connect with the audience. We like to take questions from the chat room. We like to just look at comments. Sometimes we share those comments and stories during our show. And I really just think it's given us a great way to interact with the audience. We get a much better feel for what the audience wants out of our show.
0: It also helps us as far as um, knowing what we're going to talk about because we kind of know that we'll generally have a certain number of questions that we can address. So as we prepare for a show, which is an hour long, we don't have to necessarily count on you know just having the topics that we predetermine. We know that we'll have the questions that may give us a springboard for a totally different discussion.
3: So how do you go about preparing for a program? I mean, we, we do have our own little little show, show prep procedure here, but I'm just wondering, you know, how, how you go about preparing for a, for a program, especially a live show.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, we probably should prepare more than we do, actually. <laughs> um, well, we, we end up, what we end up doing is, uh, Becca and I will just kind of discuss sort of some general topic that we think might be good. Um, for the upcoming show, which is usually we start doing that the week before and just kind of, just what do you think about this as a topic or a theme or something? And then we just sort of just think on it. And then usually um, the night before... Um, we'll, or the night of. Or the night of, or <laughs> earlier in the, in, the, in the early afternoon, as soon as we get home from work, we'll start putting some notes down on paper, just some general outline topics. And that's usually as far as we'll go. Um, one of the things I that i um did earlier on uh, on a few episodes was i tried to get a little too detailed um which again if you're talking about delivering a lecture style type of a scenario that's that may be one thing but you know if you're if you're on the radio and you're live you want to be a lot more flexible and i've kind of learned to not overthink and and over specify what we're going to do
3: now, you, you're you're really really heavy duty in, into astronomy outreach. Do you include your local astronomy clubs, or are astronomy clubs throughout the country invited to uh, to maybe you know, post their events or, or talk about their events on uh, on your show?
0: Uh, yeah, we we are members of a few local astronomy clubs. Um, one of which is is basically exists for education and public outreach and astronomy. So we've done quite a bit of it ourselves in real life. We also interact with clubs uh, around around the United States and even around the world. We know people in different countries that have done this as well. So uh, what we talk about it, we generally try to have it as appeal for everybody, and we also um, would like to pull our guests from that pool as well. So we do have plans to interview some people in our local astronomy clubs, but we also have some plans to interview people um, from astronomy clubs um, overseas. In, in both directions from the United States I've got a question
2: um, in thinking about contacting uh, people in other clubs what's your source of finding out who to talk to um, I mean I'm getting a feel for you know space and space enthusiasts with with Twitter but even that in itself is kind of a small subset of what's what's out there so how do you uh, how do you promote your your show and and look for um, you know look for people that you want to Uh, talk with
4: well right now the way we promote our show a lot of it is word of mouth i think we also of course try to use twitter and facebook and um you know clubs talk to each other it's it takes a lot to run a volunteer organization as i'm sure you guys know and usually in that organization there's one or two people typically or a core group of people at least that are really the guts of the organization they are the ones that do all the work. They're the ones who plan everything. You know, they're the ones who make sure to have enough volunteers. And it's amazing because those people, we kind of group together. It's like we almost find each other. You know, we find each other on Twitter. We find each other on Facebook. You find each other at astronomy conventions and through the Astronomical League and things like that.
1: So since outreach is your obviously your priority and you have a widely scattered audience, How is it that a listener can listen to you talk about astronomy or an event that's happening in the sky, and they know from where they're located on the planet, where do they know to look, how high, what direction, how high up, how do you deal with multiple located um, members of your audience?
4: Well, Gina, typically, whether they're northern or southern hemisphere, that's going to affect it. But up till now, most of the people that we've interacted through astronomy out and about have been northern hemisphere listeners as far as we know so what we would do is you know it may not be dark where they are right now it may not be night time for them but typically things the night sky doesn't change that much over the course of a couple of days if you get over the course of a week that's going to cause a problem but for us over the course of a couple of days it's easy to explain you're going to go outside about when the sun goes down, maybe an hour after, look to the south, you know, the brightest star in the sky is actually Jupiter, or that's good for this time of year, I think. Otherwise, um, whatever it is, it's going to be, you know, go outside, look to the south, it's going to be 30 degrees up, and then to tell someone how far up in the sky 30 degrees is, what we do is we use your hand, and if you go outside, and you stand up, and you hold your arm, or you hold your fist at arm's length, that's about 10 degrees. So even for a beginner astronomer who really doesn't know anything about what 30 degrees looks like, it's very easy to explain, no matter where they are on the planet, that you go out, you hold your fist at arm's length, and you do three fist lengths, and that's 30 degrees. So we try to use frames of reference that mostly everyone can understand. Okay. What, where
3: is the show currently, and and where do you see astronomy out and about going in the future?
0: Well, uh, we've just uh, completed our seventh uh, show, so we have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, room ahead of us. And we, honestly, we're not totally exactly sure where where we're going to be going, but we do know that we have some interviews that we want to set up. We also would like to do some, some of, uh, shows if we could to outreach events. So, for example, um, assuming we can get some internet access at uh, our club observatory or some of the other locations that we do our, our public outreach events, we'd really like to be able to actually do the show uh, on location. Now, barring that, uh, we can also um, fall back on doing a recording of interviews or, or that kind of thing and then folding that into our live show at a future day. So that can be anything from um, you know doing putting te- telescopes on the sidewalk at uh, a local uh, shopping mall, which we do as part of our outreach, and just interviewing uh, passers-by as they're looking through telescopes and what they saw, to um, well, amateur astronomy gatherings called star parties, more camp-out-type scenarios where people are out there Sort of like, you know, a bluegrass jamboree type of thing, but for <laughs> astronomy, I mean, that everyone just kind of gathers out there and hangs out for a couple of days. And then, you know, we like to do a show from uh, one of those events as well.
4: We'd also like to do some shows from places around the area and maybe even farther than just our area if we ever get to. Things like Yerkes Observatory and Williams Bay. It's the home of the largest refractor on the planet. I mean, it would be great to be able to go there and do a live show with some pictures, maybe some, you know, pre-recorded video, and just show people around the world. Hey, this is what we have. This is close to home. Isn't this a great building? We'd we'd like to do something like that
0: in the future. A too. virtual tour type scenario. Uh,
3: so I, I've I've heard your your show, and I think it's a fantastic uh, outreach medium. And by the way, I did sit in on the show where Jeff, you were talking about uh, you know, beginning uh, telescopes and, and so on and, and how to, how to you know, operate your first telescope. And I thought that was a rather elegant uh, description of how to, how to deal with that problem. So really, that, was, that was really neat. Um, just a real quick question. I think um, I, I just wanted to go ahead and say, first off, thank you for extending the invitation for inviting us on your program this past week. Um, Sawyer and I just had a, had a real good blast. I'm, I'm sorry that we couldn't get the whole team there, but uh, um just again thanks for uh, for being so gracious to us yes indeed. and and i believe uh, we have an announcement to make don't we
5: would you please be kind enough to make that for us we certainly would um we would like to announce
4: that we are inviting the talking space team so that's you guys to have your show on astronomy fm and be part of the astronomy fm family playing the talking space podcast
3: and uh, I'd like to say that uh, on behalf of the entire team here that we've graciously accepted that invitation. So I believe we will be effectively starting in the Astronomy FM lineup uh, this coming week, correct?
4: You will be on Tuesday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You will, that will be the first broadcast that we have of your show. Wow.
5: <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> well, working. thank you very much for that, and we hope everybody out there... We'll get to listen to that and also interact with people live in their chat room.
3: I think it'll it'll be built it'll be really really fun being a part of the uh, part of the Astronomy FM family. I think
5: I think we're gonna it'll be a fun
3: relationship.
4: We think it will too, and we're just really glad to have you guys. Okay, I I think also
3: it might be kind of fun too if you guys if if you don't mind uh would want to sit in and and uh, listen to what we usually do do here on the show, and if you want you can you know by all means chime in and and add your uh, Add any insights that you might have to the to the three questions that we're going to be discussing tonight.
0: Fantastic, we'd
5: love to. Almost Alrighty. like that round table discussion that we had on your show, except the actual version. <laughs> exactly.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, with that with that in mind, uh, team, if you don't mind, I think we're just going to jump right on it in here to uh, on uh, issue one. Looks like the. Uh, NASA fiscal year 2011 budget battle has begun, and already a 100 one, a 1.1 billion dollars salvo has been fired at the space agency. Uh, Keith Cowling's NASA Watch is reporting that Mike Griffin's original Constellation infrastructure is absolutely dead. What do you guys think? Think is is he right? I mean, given given what we've heard, uh, there have been several different reports out there uh, from several different sources. Uh, Jeff Fouts is, uh uh, space Policy Blog, uh, Space News, the whole bit confirming that, uh, indeed, there is going to be uh, $1.1 billion removed from the budget. What do you guys think the repercussions of that are going to be? And uh, given the fact, too, that we're knocking on the door with the State of the Union address coming up on January
1: 27th. It's horrible. I mean, we, I, I think we got to give President Obama the benefit of the doubt to see if he's going to make an announcement. I mean, there are options that were presented to him. So, is he cutting this out to delay it a year? Uh, do something better in a few years time, maybe. But again, it's the repercussions of, you know, you've got all these engineers that are there, ready, ramped up, know the systems, know know the know the policies at NASA, know how to work this you know, the agency, and especially after the Columbia tragedy and all of the changes that were made about safety and. You're going to have to lay off this workforce that it's a tragedy. I mean, it's going to cost more money to restart this later. And I don't know, maybe maybe the political will isn't there, but, you know, I like Kennedy, he was the best cheerleader for the space program. I, it's got to come from the top down, and we have to put the face of America on it. And you have to see if he's going to be able to pull that off, or maybe he's decided not to, but... I think whatever he says, $1.1 billion away from Constellation, well, I, I think the decision's been made from NASA pretty much, um, and they're not going to fund the heavy lift vehicle. This is this is not good for
5: Constellation. It's pretty much sticking a fork in it. I agree exactly with what you said there, Gina, because if I remember correctly, in the Augustine Commission's report, they said that the Ares slash uh, orion program can get absolutely nowhere unless they add an extra three billion dollars to nasa's budget and i would say taking away 1.1 billion is not helping at all and so i think right away the repercussions are immediate because nasa now has to rethink their program out of what they can do especially saying that their program that needs three billion dollars is already losing So, they're going to have to redesign everything from scratch, which, as we were talking about last week, they were saying is pretty much unwise, but they may have to. And so, I think this is just going to start a whole chain of events, and the dominoes are going to be falling the wrong way.
2: Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking with this, and, um, you know, I hate to be positively negative, but um, I don't think the uh, government at the upper levels really cares more than the blink of an eye about the people that are affected with this. And when I say people that are affected, you know, we're talking about the employees and contractors at NASA. We're also talking about the Americans and the population of the whole world that are positively affected by research, by things, by science, by technology, by innovation. I don't think they really care about that. I think they're concerned Uh, In the in the political space with how they're going to be perceived come the next election if they're going to get to keep their job or if they're going to be out on the street and I don't think they really care about the folks that we care so much about and I think it's going to be a slow road to to change the whole science and space perception within America to where it's perceived as being as something as important as defense and communications and the media and entertainment. It, it doesn't have that uh, that high a level. I think it'll get there, but it's going to be a slow process. It's going to be things like Jeff and Becker are doing with their show, with the other shows on Astronomy FM, hopefully with what we're doing, with what the Space Tweep Society is doing. It's going to take all of that. Every every single little bit is seems like such a little bit, but it's going to, positively influence some people with what we see as being so tragic and hopefully it won't go quite the way we are talking.
3: Yeah, I'm keeping my fingers crossed too. I mean just this past week, uh, I guess it was on January 20th on Florida Today in the Flame Trench blog, uh, they were saying that the um, Aerospace Workforce Outlook report was released um, and uh, it's looking rather bleak for the amount of jobs that are just going to be lost on the Space Coast alone. I believe the um, the estimates out of the uh, estimated uh, 9,160 they're reporting that uh, they estimated that 7,000 jobs are going to be lost um, and that's just um, at KSC alone. Um, not to mention, too, the, uh, lo- the repercussions to the local economy over there. Number one, I don't think the local economy is going to be able to absorb you know seven thousand jobs the loss of seven thousand jobs is number one number two is you know you have to think of i mean you know the the outlying areas as well I mean the little lunchonnettes the hotels things like that they're going to be barren for a, for quite some time so there is going to be a huge economic impact to the space coast on this whole thing and I don't think um a lot of people have kind of looked at that angle of it everybody's talking about uh well, we've got to create jobs. We've got to go ahead and and, and maintain our economic and, and uh, scientific edge in this country. And yet we are going ahead and just just flushing down the drain um, seven thousand you know really really skilled workers. And to me, it, that that is just rep- just absolutely reprehensible.
4: We were talking about this earlier. The two of us really don't keep up on this probably as much as we should. We're so into the outreach portion of it that we don't. Really, keep track of the space news um but just in reading about it this past week, it's disturbing i you know it's not like these seven thousand people can go and get a job at McDonald's, and that's gonna be the same thing. It just doesn't work that way this is it's
0: skilled labor i mean well, I mean, I mean it's technology, and i think I think one of the things i mean we we live in in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area, right, so there's a lot of engineering. There's a lot of manufacturing that, that, that goes on. I work in that industry um, directly. And, uh, you know, we, we're we losing manufacturing in the Midwest, as everyone knows. Uh, engineering, you know, we're just, if we can save 40 jobs here or 100 jobs there at, at, our, at the companies in, in our area, it's, it's a major win. And, um, you know, I think that to have just, you know, again, the best and the brightest, which is really what NASA uh, represents traditionally and in actuality, um, to have that, that amount of of uh, job loss, as you said, 7,000 people just in the Space Coast alone, that's that's uh, that's a staggering loss. That, that would be like, well, it would be like um, closing automotive plants, multiples.
4: In know? Milwaukee, it would be like if Harley-Davidson left the city.
0: Yeah. And all be. of
4: those people would be out of a job. And the city would not be able to absorb them. There just aren't that many jobs here. It's the same there. It's terrible.
3: I really have to firmly agree with you on that. Somebody also mentioned, if I remember exactly, could this be sort of like a a political, you know, one-umpsmanship type thing? See, we're cutting the budget. See, we're going to go ahead and cut programs that we don't think are necessary or required. And this might be a good lead-in to issue number two. Um, Senator Russ Feingold, uh, Democrat from uh, Wisconsin, uh, Becca and Jeff, you're, sort of your uh, your you're, uh, turf there, you know, sort of had this really brilliant money saving idea to go ahead and try to save 24 billion dollars from the uh, uh, from the uh, U.S. budget. He uh, wants to go ahead and say, okay, let's delay the entire uh, Constellation project for about five years. Does this kind of sort of sound familiar to anybody? Um, but I'm just wondering, are, we, are we, is this just part of the political climate here where everybody's just sort of saying, okay, let's, let's figure out things to cut because of everything that's been going on um, with the political elections that have been happening? Or is, is this really the uh, political elite saying that, hey, you know, we don't think that this program's worth it and it's not critical right now and so we're going to just put it in stasis for a little bit until such time that uh, we think it's uh, we think we want to go ahead and execute this. Uh, I'm opening up to the floor. Anybody?
1: That might be a little critical. I mean, I think what's going on. Obviously, this healthcare debate. Obviously, there's a little backlash right now with um, Obama's plans and policies. I don't know if they're just saying no to say no. Um, I think. That you know, you you would hear the same kind of conversation in the '60s. You have to take care of some domestic issues when there's several people out of work. Yeah, I know we're t- sitting here talking about people in the Kennedy Space Center area in the Houston area losing their jobs, but there's so many thousands of Americans right now that have lost their jobs and lost their health care and paying higher taxes and not getting anything in return. That you know, to any politician just on paper, I mean, to a vote to spend something that wasn't automatically going to put an American to work immediately seems a little bit outlandish. However, NASA is your best agency to be an automatic return on investment economic engine. And I don't think the senate or the the house or maybe even the, this president doesn't know how to get that message forward to the american people in the recession that we're in now so i am just going to say that hopefully i think we have to take care of a few other fires before um, we can readdress this i think personally i think that's what's going on
5: i agree and need i say it one more time if i haven't uh, pushed it enough times on this podcast as all of us have People in Congress and people throughout the United States don't realize how much the human space program does for them back on Earth. As as Gene said last episode, if only people realized that the money that they were spending wasn't really spending it in space, it was being returned right back to them. And um, I think people, until they can get that in their mind, that's always going to be the same thought in Congress. And even if Congress realizes that and tries to tell the public... They're not going to believe it. And they're going to say it's a stupid idea, just like half the United States is with the health care. I'm not taking sides on the health care debate. I'm just talking about the space program and how at this point it just seems like people, no matter what you tell them, they're not going to get it into their heads. And especially Congress. It's for them. It's all about the people, the money, the vacations.
0: Being that um, Mr. Feingold is from Wisconsin, I think he's going to get at least a little bit of backlash on his plan just because, again, I, I work in the engineering field, um, and our company, uh, our company works with 1,600 other companies in Wisconsin, Illinois, and in the UP of Michigan that do engineering, that, that do th- that make things, and they use our software for to engineer and design. And quite a quite a few of them, strangely enough, in in the upper Midwest, uh, these companies do have ties, ultimately, to the space program. Whether it's actually working on its rotation, whether it's working on on heavy items, uh, whether it's working on medical research, uh, we have a, a company in Madison that that started out. They're called Space Labs, and they, they actually started out by doing by inventing essentially wireless uh, medical monitoring for the Gemini program. And they're one of the one of the cornerstones of the uh, medical industry today, medical instrumentation. So i think that you know again from a job standpoint you know you, you turn off the you know the spending for these programs and there will be an unintended um, immediate effect the um, negative uh, for for job growth in all around all across the country certainly in the midwest which i think again as Sawyer pointed out people don't realize you know just like they don't realize how much oh, the consumer goods are are made in China. That was a big scare with the whole that paint thing. And you could talk to anybody in our company or in in, in our industry, in, in in our part of the world that, you know, makes things and designs things to be made. And we could have told you that, sure, that's been going on for for decades, literally. So, you know, it's it's something that I think that the insiders in Washington need to take a little closer look at. And and you you can't. There are a few places where you can get such a good return on your investment than in, in, in the space program.
3: I, I still say we're, we're looking at, at, a, uh, at a big tragic mistake here if we're going to start picking NASA's pocket, thinking we're going to go ahead and spend some money, you know, save money on that.
1: If you try to find our podcast on podbean.com once in a while, um, or if you keep clicking refresh, you will find an ad for Keep America in Space if you click on that link on the same page where you can download our podcast, it will bring you to actually a site hosted by Boeing on how to contact your elected officials to let them know, um, you know, send a letter to Congress urging increased funding for NASA's Constellation and Ares programs. But even if it's not specific, The point of it is to show your congressman or congresswoman um, that you support America in space. So I'm going to have Sawyer add that into the link for the show, or you can find it on podbean.com if you keep refreshing our page for the podcast.
5: I'll be more than happy to put that into the podcast notes so wherever you listen to it. Either just look for the information on the notes or click the info button, and you'll be able to find the link to that.
3: Yeah, sorry. I appreciate that. I've already done that, so I've already gone ahead and signed petitions. And I've oh, had me too. That. I've already had my uh, uh, Senator Menendez and Senator Lautenberg here in New Jersey respond to that, so um, they do respond. I mean, it, it may not be them. It's probably somebody in their offices, but at least, you know, your voice is registered as somebody who supports your space program. Gina, again, thank you for pointing that out. I really do appreciate that. No problem. We'll move on, then. Issue number three, uh... And the Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel, led by retired Vice Admiral Joseph W. Dwyer, warned this week that NASA could run into some serious safety challenges if they rely solely on private companies to ferry astronauts to and into space, to and from, say, the International Space Station in, in the near future. However, um, the Commercial Spaceflight Federation fired back, saying it isn't to blame for its vehicles not being human rated since well nasa's never set any clear standards um and uh president of uh, spacex elon musk characterized the panel's findings as bizarre he said the falcon nine and uh, the dragon spacecraft meet all of nasa's published human rating requirements who's right here do you think uh uh, there is a safety risk or do you think commercial spaceflight has uh has uh, got it right
2: you know, safety and spaceflight, you know, you almost wonder if they don't go together. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of the most hazardous occupations out there, and it's, it's admirable that the uh, industry is doing everything that, uh, that, that they are guided to do, but I think NASA is probably writing the book on this to some extent. You know each launch vehicle that's uh, that's been out there, including the shuttle with its with its record, uh, of, you know the the number of launches they've had and the number of tragedies. You know each system has been a custom designed, you know not a production type operation, and that's where we're headed in the future. And there will be more clear standards, I think, once we get a little further down the road. We're not there yet, so I, I think it's a case of people have to kind of invent things on their own and come to agreement that yeah this is the best we can do with the amount of money that we've got to work with.
5: I think that's a good point in terms of the money on that. I mean again it's all about the money to get it going although one thing that's true is no matter how much money you put into a program you could put in 20 billion extra dollars into a program that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be any safer and that there could be one human error or one decision error that can make a tiny mistake that will cause a disastrous end to a mission. And so I think you just have to deal with what you have and deal with the risks and go with what you deem to be acceptable of lowering the risk. Not that it's going to completely eliminate it, because unfortunately, you're never going to completely eliminate a risk of something happening. As we said before, you can't eliminate the risk of you getting hit in the head with something as you step outside your door. So it's just a matter of having to find something that is considered an acceptable medium and going from there.
2: I think you're on target, Sawyer. Uh, It's a matter of what things we can anticipate and then the the unexpected.
1: Uh, I think Sawyer hit it on the head, totally. And, you know, there's always going to be a risk with spaceflight. And oftentimes it's um, the things we haven't considered that are going to be the problem for us. But I guess that's why we just have to keep at it. I think uh, it's an interesting thought. You know, we've done it with, um, we've man-rated a a Gemini, or the Titan missile, into a Gemini spacecraft. It could be done, but uh, how well, if that's not what it's initially designed for. So, I don't know. I think NASA's got to come clean with what their specific definition is of that. And um, is it, maybe this is NASA's way of protecting themselves so they can kind of stay in the business of low-Earth orbit. I don't know.
0: There is, a, there is a motive in private business for profit, and uh, in in those equations, there are uh, factors for safety that may not be defined by NASA, but i my, my gut is that they are, they would be different than what NASA internally would use as a driving uh, driving calculation.
4: I guess I feel like Jeff feels we were watching uh, Miles O'Brien on this week in space today in fact and he had and I will not remember the gentleman's name so he had the gentleman you were just talking about Gene on and he interviewed him and my gut feeling while listening to the the man talk was that maybe they really have a good product but it's just that it's a it's a product this is commercial it's always going to be commercial the whole point of having a commercial product is to make money so as far as safety standards go I think personally, I would get in a NASA rocket before I would get in a rocket that was made by a commercial company.
3: I think what's going on is I think Gina made a valid point. I think NASA might be trying to hang on to the uh, the low Earth orbit uh, uh, duties. In fact, uh, I believe the uh, the advisory panel recommended specifically that uh, Ares One not be killed. Because of this, I think it's kind of foolhardy to get rid of Ares 1 and just substitute something like, say, all the, the, uh, uh, the Falcon 9 or, or something like that and without having something to supplement it. And I think that they're looking at Ares 1 as a possible supplement to Falcon 9 waiting in the wings or, or any of the other commercial spaceflight ventures that are going on. I don't want to just pick on SpaceX's stuff. But I think that might be it, Gina. I think you hit it right there. I think, I think NASA's trying to hold on to low Earth orbit, and, um, and they, they do want a piece of that action. My gut feeling, though, is let commercial have low Earth orbit, but let NASA get back into the business of pure exploration. Let's get back to the Moon, let's move on to Mars and beyond, and I think low Earth orbit is a distraction. Quite frankly, at this point, we've been stuck there for about 40 years now. We know how to do it. And just give it over to somebody who you know, has, has potential. I will grant you, though, that you know, there may be some safety issues because NASA's been doing it for 40 years and these are new kids on the block. But uh, they've also had to rely on 40 years of NASA experience to go ahead and build their, their particular rockets. So it, 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 there's sort of a symbiotic thing here. And so that slams the lid on show number two oh four. Jeff or Becca, uh, thank you so much for joining us tonight and uh, uh, once again allowing us to go ahead and plug Astronomy Out and About. Um, that again goes on at eight p.m. Central Time on Tuesdays, so if uh, which is nine p.m. Eastern, so if uh, anybody is so inclined, please give them a listen. Uh, Jeff and Becca Sester, again, thank you so much for coming on board.
0: Thank you very much for having us.
4: Thank you. It's been great, Gina and Mark and Sawyer and Jean. It's been a really good time.
3: Uh, again, Gina, thanks so much for for coming on board with us this this evening. It's always a pleasure to have you have you here.
1: Thank you, Jane.
3: Uh, Sawyer, again, thank you once again. Wonderful insights today. Not a problem. Thank you for hosting it. And Mark, thank you so much for coming on board board this evening. It was fun having you here again. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank all of you for listening to uh, Talking Space. We hope to see you
5: again next week. And can I plug something in here, Gene, really quickly? By all means. I have to do it. Have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Good night, everyone.